Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Then I got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, I think when I was 27 or something. And I could every week progressively feel my joints like basically I couldn't move them. And it's like one by one, your joints start getting eaten up. And that was just kind of like a horrifying feeling that what I can do today in two weeks, I might not be able to do. And then if it's going at this kind of speed, like what's going to happen in five years? I might literally not be able to move. And even though my career was going okay and I was feeling comfortable with like my 50K a year, 60K a year salary in New York, I was like, I may not be able to work forever. And that really made me start considering my options on how to build my life so that even if I couldn't work a traditional nine to five commute job, how I'm going to be able to make money or how I can use the money I have now saved to help me navigate parts of my life where I can't work. And that's when I started kind of Googling. And after a little while, I found the FIRE movement and the Twitter FIRE movement. It definitely had a direct impact on me thinking about money really, really hard. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres, award-winning Latina personal finance expert. I didn't always have my financial shit together, but when I started looking for POC-friendly personal finance podcasts, I couldn't find any. And so Yo Quiero Dinero was born. On this show, I'll show you how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and most importantly, how to make it grow. Each week, I'm connecting you with the most brilliant minds in the world of money and business, so you can learn about investing, entrepreneurship, and building wealth. The best part? I'm dishing up all this knowledge with a sassy side of sazón. So if you're ready to be poderosa with your dinero, you've come to the right place. Let's dive in. 
Before we hop into today's conversation, I want to remind you to follow us on social. If you're loving this podcast and you want more community, you want to find out more about our events and all the stuff that we have going on behind the scenes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and everywhere else you love to hang out on the internet. If you're loving this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review if you listen to us on Apple. It's the easiest way to share our podcast with people that you know and love, and it helps us get discovered by amazing listeners like you. So take a moment, leave us a review, share us with your friends and family, subscribe so that you never miss an episode, and make sure to check out our blog, YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com, where you can sign up for our email list and you'll never miss an episode. Plus, you get exclusive invitations to our live events, special discounts for our digital courses, and as always, our best personal finance tips and advice to help you be poderosa with your dinero. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, Roko, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Currently, I'm a technical writer and technical instructor, and I work freelance. But in my past lives, I've worked in corporate IT for five, six years. And for school, I went to get my bachelor's and master's in special education. And so you are actually a member of the FIRE community, is that correct? Yes, I discovered the Twitter FIRE community in 2018 and probably one of the best discoveries I made. So I'd love to know more about your backstory with money before we talk about your FIRE journey. So a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are first gen, they're navigating money as potentially an immigrant or a child of immigrants. And so I'm curious what your relationship was like with money growing up, if you can give us some context. Yeah, so I'm a first generation immigrant. I think there's like some things where they say I'm like generation 1.5. So my parents came to the US and I was seven when I came. And my dad was an expat, which means he was basically shipped out from his company in Japan to one of the subsidiaries or satellite companies here in the U.S. And usually you go back after three to five years. So by the time I was in middle school or something, we were supposed to have already gone back to Japan. But they lengthened the expat period and they're like, can you stay for a couple more years? And by that point, my parents made an executive decision that we're too American and there's no way we're going to be able to thrive in Japan, given we've been going to the public school since we were in kindergarten, first grade here where we're like, hey, individualism, hey, you need to state your opinions. There's all these like subtleties of being American raised that really doesn't mesh well with Japan. And there's even like a saying in Japanese that's like the nail that's sticking out gets bashed. So, you know, like if it's a fence and you're making a fence, like they're going to bash in that nail that's sticking out and we're definitely going to become the nail that's bashed out. So <laughs> while my dad was an expat until actually last year, my parents started applying for a green card so that we can stay. And my parents didn't really speak any English. They didn't even want to come here. They had no idea that this was in their future, but they're like, you know what, for our kids sake, we have to stay. So they made their life plans expecting to raise their children in Japan. So they didn't know anything about the system here, financial, educational, like it's just thrown in here. And even when they came, they thought it was temporary. So I kind of had to navigate the whole school system and the social aspects and just growing up in this foreign country myself. And money topics, I think, is 
mostly taboo in a lot of Asian cultures. In Japan, especially, you just kind of squirrel away money, save it, save it. You don't invest it because you can't really trust the stocks. Those are scary things. So you save cash. And because Japan has been an extremely low inflation country for the past couple of decades, it's not like here where your dollar will be worth 50 cents in 20 years. Like if your dollar is probably worth almost a dollar now if you saved it 20 some years ago. And recently, the economy has been doing some up to turbies over there. So a lot of what people took for granted until just recently, I think, is tumbling down. So I think the future generation, that's not going to be true. So I think my parents coming from that kind of culture, they're like, OK, we're going to save cash. And when we buy a house, we're going to pay for half of it in cash and pay off the mortgage as fast as we can. And if we keep on saving cash, we're fine. And so actually, my dad didn't even have a retirement account until maybe four or five years ago. And he's like 62, right? Because one, he's an expat. So they're like, well, you don't need a retirement account. You're an expat. You don't even work here, really. But then turns out he's going to retire here. And no one had thought enough for him to be like, hey, this isn't Japan. You're not going to have a pension. You're not going to be able to live on the so in Japan, when you quit your job that you've been working on for decades and decades, they give you like a severance payment, basically. And you're supposed to use that and the social security to basically live for the rest of your life. And the taxes are very favorable to that. And for the severance payment, you don't pay as much taxes as you would for a regular income payment because they're like, you need this money. But the U.S. doesn't have that kind of system. So if he got that, that would be like a bonus and they're going to take 50% of it. So... It's kind of like, hey, dad, that's not going to work out. And the amount of money that people might be able to live for the rest of their lives in Japan is definitely not what you can live for the rest of your life here. So stuff like retirement and stuff I had to figure out on my own as I started working. And money in general just was not really spoken about. My mom is very anxious about money because she doesn't know anything about money. And she's been a stay-at-home wife and mother, and she's been, like, raising us. And she works, like, 20 hours a day being a parent and navigating this, like, foreign system, trying to make sure her kids are okay and getting what they need. But she's never been to an ATM. And she doesn't know how much money they have. And my dad's not the kind of person who can emotionally be supportive of that and kind of talk her through it or share what's going on. So she's just very, very scared about what's going to happen when he retires. And seeing how like scared and insecure about money she's been all through me growing up, when I left college and was like, okay, I need to work. Like Even if it's a very small amount of money that I was making, I was like, I need to know fully what's going on. And I didn't know about investing. I, I was very scared about investing in stuff. And I didn't do it until my late 20s. I was like, okay, I have to, even if I got married and had kids and did become a stay-at-home wife or something, you know, I'm like, I always have to know what's going on with my money because I don't want to be in that position. I think that anxiety, you know, it's not healthy, but that kind of was like the foundation of me being like, I need to save money and I need to have a safety net for myself. It's not like I can't go home and they can't feed me and house me if something really catastrophic happened. But I'm also like, I'm going to probably have to take care of them when they grow old, in which case, like, I need my own, what do you call it, life vest on before I can help my parents. So 
Yeah. I think a lot of people who listen to this show can resonate with that. I know for me personally, my parents are both in their early 60s and that's something that is at the forefront of my own financial planning because again, coming here from Puerto Rico, nobody told them, you know, you should get a 401k and you should open a Roth IRA. So it's like they have those accounts now, but they were open in the last maybe 10 years and there's just not enough money in them. And it's like, okay, well, we can either ignore the elephant in the room and pretend like I'm not going to have to prepare for financially supporting them, or I can kind of be proactive about it while also making sure that I'm saving for myself too, which I think is an important balance that we need to have in place. So I'm curious how you've prioritized your own fire journey while also planning for potentially supporting your parents in their retirement. Yes. So currently I'm 33 and I founded Fire Movement, I think when I was 27 or 28. So at that time I wasn't making very much and I was living in New York. And so I was definitely put my own emergency gear on first mentality. And especially with, I have a lot of disabilities and a lot of chronic conditions where I realized like actually working forever like the self-deprecating jokes that we millennials tell ourselves is actually a luxury. Like I probably won't be able to do that, which meant I had to kind of get my stuff in order probably way before other people might have had to start thinking about it. So I started really aggressively putting money into retirement and saving cash. And when I finally felt comfortable enough, I put some money in the robo investment. One of my friends was like, if you're really scared and you don't know what you're doing, then at least like you don't have to manage it and you can kind of see what's going on. And once you feel more comfortable, you can move money over and manage it yourself. And so I took that advice and put a little bit of money in and I was like, oh, this wasn't as scary as I thought. And after like a year, I moved it away and moved it to my own accounts in Vanguard and started just buying S&P 500. And I found the FIRE movement, which solidified the idea that actually retiring and being financially independent isn't like a millionaire, you know, you're making 300K kind of thing. Like I was seeing people who were making less than six figures achieving it. And personally, like I like working on what I like working on. So I don't think I would ever traditionally retire. But the fact that you could be financially independent and pick and choose what kind of work you want to do or you do value-based working was really, really desirable for me. So I was like, oh, that's the kind of life I want to live, especially with my disabilities, making it that sometimes I'm really able to work and other times I'm just, I can barely get out of bed. So hitting my first 100K in savings and retirement really helped me realize like even when I'm making like 50K in New York City, these kinds of things can happen. And of course, the fact that my parents were able to pay for my college was really, really important. While I'm really thankful that they did that and they did that for my sister too, I do wonder if that also contributed a lot to them not being ready for retirement. So it's kind of like a hard place to be like, they did this for us because they thought this is the best thing to do. And I really appreciate it. It really gave me a big start to be able to work for very little money. But if they had put that in retirement, they might have like half a million by now. You know, it's kind of like the back and forth that sometimes go through and being able to have agency over my own money and how I save and how I invest and seeing the money grow. They say the first 100K is the hardest. And I definitely saw that. And after that, it just kind of compounds. And so now I kind of feel like we do have our emergency stuff 
done. We're very financially stable. We have a paid off house and I get to choose what kind of job I do. And now that my parents are getting close to their retirement age, I'm shifting finally, I think, from, okay, we're stable. Now, if they do need money, what kind of stuff do we need to do? And I've been kind of reading up on like how much care costs and what kind of options there are and whether we can move them to like a smaller place that's more accessible and stuff like that. But we recently had a baby. So it's kind of like on both sides kind of situation right now. Yeah. Now you're officially a part of the sandwich generation where you're yeah. trying to figure out how to build wealth for your kid while also making sure that your parents are okay and you're okay. It's a lot to navigate, right? And especially you mentioned that you were dealing with chronic conditions that basically would force you out of the workplace permanently at some point. And so I'm curious if part of that was your motivation to pursue fire or was it just nuance that you came upon the movement and then you found yourself dealing with a chronic condition that could make traditional work inaccessible to you? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Oh, it was definitely like a huge component. I had brain surgery when I was 22 and that threw my railroad off the tracks of like, I was just going to be a special ed teacher and teach until I retire and then live off the pension kind of situation. And that kind of just like rolled off the track before it even started. And at that point, I was told by doctors that I'm actually never going to be able to work and I will always have to be taken care of by my parents and I won't be able to like live independently. And so starting from there, it's kind of like any kind of independence was like great. So I actually moved to New York because the whole dialogue around me was that I'm never going to be able to be independent and I will never be able to work and I can't drive. And my parents are basically going to have to take care of me for the rest of my life. And I was like 22, 23. And I was like, you can say whatever you want. And that may be true, but I want to at least like give it a try before I accept that. And if I tried and it didn't work out, I can at least know for the rest of my life that at least I gave it a try. So I actually kind of ran away to New York with like a duffel bag and a backpack and my favorite pillow and got a sublet and was like hunting for a job for half a year. And I didn't hear back from anyone. And I was like, oh, well, this is not working out very well. But I had like a chance encounter applying to be a recruiter at a recruiting firm. And they were like, oh, hey, we actually filled the recruiting position, but would you be interested in working in IT? Because you seem to speak Japanese and you seem to speak English and we need a bilingual IT person. You know, if you're willing to try, we're willing to teach you IT skills because we definitely can't teach language skills and our client wants a bilingual person. And so that kind of was like, a, oh, it was just a part of me that I'm bilingual, but I never really thought about using it for anything. And 
I was always so eager to like meld into America. And that part of me was just part of my name and where I came from, not something I was ever going to use. And suddenly like that got me a job, even though it's like $14 an hour. And so the fact that I was able to just even work full time was like this huge thing and live independently was a huge thing. And it was okay for a while, despite the fact I wasn't making any money. Then I got diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, I think when I was 27 or something. And I could every week progressively feel my joints, like basically I couldn't move them. And it's like one by one, your joints start getting eaten up. And that was just kind of like a horrifying feeling that what I can do today in two weeks, I might not be able to do. And then if it's going at this kind of speed, like what's going to happen in five years? I might literally not be able to move. And even though my career was going okay and I was feeling comfortable with like my 50K a year, 60K a year salary in New York, I was like, I may not be able to work forever. And that really made me start considering my options on how to build my life so that even if I couldn't work a traditional nine to five commute job, how I'm going to be able to make money or how I can use the money I have now saved to help me navigate parts of my life where I can't work. And that's when I started kind of Googling. And after a little while, I found the FIRE movement and the Twitter FIRE movement. It definitely had a direct impact on me thinking about money really, really hard. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it becomes a rabbit hole. Once you discover the fire movement, it's like you're looking for all the blogs, you're listening to all the podcasts, you want to know all the things. And one of the things that definitely resonated with me in the fire movement was side hustling. This idea that you could just build your own business, build your own income streams that would allow you to walk away from corporate. And that's actually something that you did. So I'd love to hear more about that part of your story as well. Yeah, the side hustling thing was really important to me because as someone with chronic illness, I cannot go without health insurance and I can't have crappy health insurance. So keeping my full-time job with benefits was really important to me, even though it was getting harder and harder for me to work full-time. I knew that was one thing that I can't just give up before something's like really, really established. And the fact that side hustles allowed me to test things out and you can pick and choose what works and what doesn't work, or even if it worked, if it doesn't bring you joy, or if it's a chore doing it, I think the money is not worth it. So I've been able to figure out what I really wanted to do before I made the leap to pursue it full time. And so I began with like tutoring and dog sitting and babysitting even before I got my first full time job because I needed to pay my rent. And I continued it for a couple of years, even as I worked full time. And once I got to my last job, which was paying me 60K, I was like, I feel like I can finally not do this and focus on like enjoying my life in New York or something. Then I got rheumatoid arthritis and I was like, oh, shit. I was like, okay, I need to figure something out really fast that I can do. Even if I got fired from this job or I couldn't work this job, I would have at least some sort of income, even if it's just a couple hundred dollars. That versus zero, I felt like is like a huge difference. I started doing like dog sitting and things again. Then I was like, I feel like I want to do something where I can sit at a computer and do it. Because one of the big things was, you know, I might not be able to move around and walk dogs. So <laughs> I started looking around and it coincided with me trying to find my next step in tech. 
to see what I can do with a career and specifically ones that will allow me to not have to commute to work all the time. And this is pre-COVID. So like even if you worked in IT and you didn't need to be there, the norm was that you made your one hour each way commute to the office every day. So I was getting a certification and I was studying for the certification and I decided to create like a study blog for myself and upload it. It was literally just for the certification so I can pass because I had absolutely no idea what was going on. But that in turn, in turn, in turn, in turn, somehow became this business where there were people reading my blog and studying and then content managers of all these like ed tech educational platforms started looking at it and they're like, oh, I want this person to write for us or I want this person to teach for us. And one of the people that reached out was um, LinkedIn Learning. LinkedIn Learning is like an online platform where you can learn almost anything. It doesn't have to be tech, but tech is one of their big money makers just because of the nature of the tech industry. And they wanted me to create this certification course for Amazon Web Services catered towards beginners because that's kind of where I was and that's kind of where I'm able to explain things to beginners. And one of the reasons why I said yes to this and didn't say yes to a lot of the other offers that were coming in about technical writing was that they were like, oh, yeah, no, no, we want you to keep your full time job. All the other ones wanted me to switch over to them. I was like, I have a thing going right now where it's stable and I have health insurance and I want to try this out before I commit. I tried it out. I created a couple courses with them and it was doing all right. That kind of gave me this motivation and this feel of, hey, maybe I can do something on my energy level. And content creation is great because it's not like a nine to five, Monday to Friday kind of thing. You need like this burst of energy and inspiration and you create it and then you spit it out. And then when you're not able to do it anymore, you just kind of roll until you have energy to make something else. And so that first set of courses have rolled me for the past three years, three, four years as the pandemic hit and I quit my job and stuff like that. So like the side hustle to making it my full-time thing has really worked out well for me because I could do it risk-free. That's absolutely incredible how these opportunities come up just from a, you know, you kind of leveraging your journey through pursuing the certification and then becoming known for being a subject matter expert. It's, It's wild how this stuff can happen. So you have now different ways that you're earning passive income, right? Or is that still the LinkedIn learning is that the main way? LinkedIn learning is definitely the main income source just because of the volume. But I have another set of video courses teaching introductory coding at another platform called Egghead. And I recently published a book. I'm not really sure if that'll make any money, but it's there for when it decides it'll make me some money. And I have like little stuff coming in from like Patreon or sometimes people send me tips or my podcast. And I also do some affiliate stuff because I'm sharing my own content or I'm sharing like stuff that helped me study and stuff like that. And I sell ebooks. So there's like a lot of little things, but the main stuff are definitely LinkedIn learning. Okay, cool. I'm curious, as someone in the FIRE movement, obviously one of the end goals of this is to become financially independent and potentially retire. And I know you mentioned that because of your chronic disability, that you need access to healthcare. So like, what would be the plan if you were in a position that you can't work anymore? Like, How are you planning for that? 
what I did in 2019 is I got married for health insurance. And people think that's a joke, but my husband and I were like in a relationship for a couple of years and it was kind of this relationship where like we're perfectly fine with being in a relationship for the rest of our lives without getting married because we're both working and we didn't really see like there's that many benefits for two people making like decent amount of money to get married, like tax wise. And one of the reasons why we decided to get married was because I wanted to quit my job and try this freelance thing. And since we were already committed and we were already like very, very open with everything, including our finances, like getting married and putting our finances together was kind of a no brainer for us that we felt very comfortable doing it. I definitely wouldn't just marry a random person off the street for health insurance. Other than that, one of the options I was looking at was all these part-time jobs that provide you health insurance, like Starbucks or Costco. And I was like compiling like a list of companies who provided health insurance for part-time because I was like, if I have a dream, I'm willing to spend a part of my time getting a stable paycheck and health insurance to make it come to life. And so it turns out that I didn't have to do that because my husband has health insurance through his full-time job and he doesn't really have much intention of going on his own or retiring anytime soon. I do sometimes worry with the economy in its state right now of like him losing his job and what we'll do. And I think my income wouldn't qualify me for any sort of like disability or uh, Medicaid. So I think... If push comes to shove, we're just going to have to commit thousands of dollars every month to my health insurance because especially now with a child, I'm not willing to go without health insurance. Do you use an HSA for investing for healthcare, or do you have a different method? We used to have HSA until last two years ago, and we loved it. We've been investing our HSAs. And then I actually had a miscarriage and they charged me $2,000 to tell me that my fetus is dead. And I was like, okay, this high deductible account thing is not working out, especially if we want to have a baby. So we switched over to a more expensive plan. And so now we have an FSA instead of an HSA. So for like how our family is going now with the baby and he has like eczema and some like milk protein allergy and stuff like that, we want to stay on this non-HSA account. But I think HSA, like it's it's been great for us until we hit that point where we're like, uh, we can't keep on paying $300 for every sonogram. Yeah, you have to kind of weigh the pros and cons about how much healthcare you're going to utilize if you're going to be using a high deductible plan because those deductibles can be insane. I just signed up for one now as a full-time entrepreneur and I think the deductibles something crazy like $7,000 before they start paying anything and I'm just like the fact that America is a place where healthcare is tied directly to employment. It's like so terrible. And I hope that in our lifetime, we see that change because I think that's the number one reason why people get stuck in careers that they don't necessarily want. And the idea of pursuing financial independence can just feel impossible because so many people are relying on this access to healthcare through an employer. I definitely agree. I think even while we've accumulated substantial amount of money and investments and resources, we're like one unfortunate misstep away from becoming bankrupt if something catastrophic happens. And just the fact you can work your whole entire life and save and be financially conscious for 60 years only to something really unfortunate happen and you have nothing 
I actually was just reading a book about that and I was like, oh my God, it's kind of like health insurance is always like that little nagging thing in the back of your head going like, it could really screw you over. So yeah, I really feel that every day. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So I'd love your advice for folks who potentially navigating a disability and are trying to figure out how to carve out a career that's going to allow them to live a life that is one that is dignified, that also accommodates their disability? Like what advice do you have? I think one of the biggest things was that until I felt more comfortable with doing my own thing as a freelancer, I always felt like I had to mask and I had to basically pretend I'm quote unquote normal and I don't have these problems. And I had to work 250% to seem like someone's normal every day. And that stress and the fact that you're already exhausted from being sick and then you have to like pretend that you're okay so that people don't start talking or you don't get fired or you can keep your health insurance. That was just really, really stressful for me. And since doing my own thing and figuring out that actually my disabilities directly fueled the fact that I'm good at what I do has been like a really, really eye-opening concept. So I'm actually really good at technical writing because of my brain surgery. And I have like really bad short-term memory for the first like 10 years. And so when I was starting out my career in IT, I had to write everything down and I had to write my like how to do something every time I figure something new out without taking advantage of the fact that I couldn't think to myself, hey, I'll remember this part so I don't have to write it in. Like I could not remember any of it. So I had to write these to-do lists or how to do stuff for me next week who might not remember anything. And so doing that made me like a really good technical writer, which I definitely didn't have the intention of, but that's just how it ended up being. And that directly fueled my new career as a technical writer. And now I've like published a book about it. And it's just kind of like all these things that I used to have to compensate for and mask, now I can be really open about it and tell people, hey, because of all these difficulties I had or all these like limitations and disabilities I've had, I'm really good at what I do. And you should hire me because I'm really good at what I do because this was a necessity for me. And I feel like with the internet, like all these things are now possible. I think it would have been a lot harder if working online was not a thing yet. So I definitely feel privileged to be living in this like generation where I can make a living and I, have a, I can make a pretty good living talking to people online and making content. And when I'm not able to physically or energy wise do much, I can just kind of hermit and it actually doesn't really hurt my finances or my career. It's kind of like the creative thing of figuring it out, the not fitting inside the box, but that's actually a good thing kind of situation. Absolutely. You are writing your own destiny. And I'd love for you to share how your freelance income has grown from when you first started it in 2019, because I think it's pretty incredible. So I have been loving charting my income, but I started with a couple hundred a month. The first year was 2019. I made 21600 And then 2020, I made 60500 And 2021, I made 96000 And last year, I made 136000 That is absolutely incredible. And I'd love for you to kind of share the background behind how that income has grown. What did you learn from year one that you started to apply to start to amplify your income in the coming years? I think it was another one of those being in the right place at the right time. But 
being able to say yes when opportunities came. I'm a very anxious person, so I was always like, I have to work more to make more, and I have to work harder to do more. But I realized actually, when you say yes to everything, you miss out on a lot of opportunities. It's like the eighty twenty principle or something, where twenty percent gives you eighty percent of the benefits, and that really has been true for me. That the more I started saying no and saying like, what can I? Do that other people can't do, and not saying yes to stuff that other people can do, has really helped me focus my time and energy on like the high, I guess, value activities instead of like the little stuff that makes me twenty dollars an hour. And I've gone from being able to walk the dog for twenty dollars per walk, which I still thought was cool and a lot of money, to billing one hundred fifty dollars an hour. So it's kind of like you have to figure out where you're needed and what. Specific skills people are looking for, and just kind of tackle that instead of just saying yes to everything and doing anything under the sun that you can do. Yeah, I absolutely love that advice. Always follow the highest return on investment activities, and I think you'll be in a good place. Before I let you go, I'd love for you to talk to folks who are dealing with disabilities, but also want to pursue fire and are in situations. That feel impossible for that to even be something to plan for. So, what advice would you give to folks who are like, "Yeah, I love the fire movement. Sounds great, but I don't know how the hell I'm supposed to do this in this condition." I think the hard part about living with disabilities is every person's situation is so different. But I think right now, in the past couple of years, it's become so much more nuanced than it was when I first got in. I feel like when I first got in, it was all the "Hey, you got to make majillion dollars, and then you got to save ninety nine percent of it, and you're gonna eat ice. If you chew, you'll be full. It's fine." And I think there's all these stuff nowadays. Like the one that I really like is like the slow fi and like the barista fire, kind of like, "Hey, you can be financially independent without being like, 'Hey, I'm never gonna work.'" For the rest of my life, like it's okay to kind of modify it to your needs, and so we're kind of in like the slow-fi kind of feeling where we're like we don't need to get there tomorrow. We want to just have this go on an upward trajectory and have like a safety net for ourselves if something happens. So, like, if my husband lost his job, our house is paid off. So, like, our minimum amount we need to live is like two thousand dollars a month. Then, if we have that much money in savings, or I'm able to produce that amount of money somehow, like it's just a comforting feeling to know that that's a thing that might be possible to live through six months, twelve months of a drought if we had to. And so, I think realizing that there's a lot of nuance to the fire movement than there used to be, and if you keep on hunting for it, you're probably going to find that one that seems more possible to you than the make five hundred thousand dollars a year and eat rice kind of mentality. Which we can't do because we need our nutrients. Absolutely, yeah. The living like a college student to retire in your thirties is not the vibe for me. So I'm like, we got to find a more sustainable way to do this. And now that there are so many different flavors of fire, it's really up to folks to figure out which one suits their personality, their goals, and whatnot. So. I'm loving your story. I know folks are going to want to find out so much more about you, your side hustles, your journey to fire, and I'd love for you to let us know where we can find you on the internet. I'm pretty all over on the internet, and you can find all my links at hirokonishimura.com, and you can find me on Twitter with the most social media. I'm at hirokonishimura. Perfect. And is there ways that you work with people who are curious to begin the fire journey? Like, do you do any type of coaching or anything like that? 
I don't, but once the baby is not an infant, I'd be happy to talk to anyone. Or if, it, if they're okay with like DMs or something, I'd be happy to chat with them. Amazing. Hiroko, thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for sharing your journey. I think it's really inspiring to know that despite the things that life can throw at us, including health conditions, when you find a way to pursue the life that you're looking for, nothing's going to stop. So thank you for giving us that message. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are ready to take your dinero to the next level, sign up for our free 14-page guide, The Financially Lit Latina, the ultimate blueprint for becoming poderosa with your dinero. This 14-page guide includes our best tips on money mindset, budgeting, debt repayment, career, investing, financial independence, side hustles, and more. And you can get it completely free. So to get your copy of the Financially Lit Latina, just head over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start. That's YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com slash start and start transforming your dinero story today. Until next time, stay empowered, stay inspired, and stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated contents constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.